Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and we are podcasting from the Women's Healthy Aging Innovation Summit here in San Diego today. And with me, I have Katie Schubert, who is CEO and President of the Society for Women's Health Research. Welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I tell you, it's so great to finally sit down and get a chance to talk with you. I think we were talking, and I was saying that a million years ago, I was actually on the board of the Society, and um, not quite a million, but, you know, you know, it was like a new concept. You know, why did you need a Society for Women's Health Research? And um, so I'm going to ask you that question. Why do we need a Society for Women's Health Research? Sure. And it sounds strange. I think when, when we describe who we are and what we do, people are surprised to learn that women were not included in clinical research, um, that there's a lot we don't know about women's health, and that women's health really encompasses more than what we traditionally think of as women's health, which is generally reproductive health, but we really look at it from issues that differently, disproportionately, or specifically impact women. And so the need is very real to advocate for increased funding and investment in the public and private sectors for women's health but also to educate and empower women and clinicians on what it means when we think through women's health. You know, that's a really big point because, again, as a clinician, you can only do what you've been taught, and you're can only and you only taught what's been researched. And so there's a big gap, and I always say, I remember in my physiology book, reproductive health was at the end of a very big book, and it was a very small part. And so I hope that that piece has gotten bigger. So let's go back and you said women weren't adequately represented. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, up until the 1990s, women were actually actively excluded from clinical research, even down to the cellular level, female cells, female animal models. That was just not a thing that scientists were using. The thought was that women are just little men. It didn't matter that, you know, you had different hormone levels, different physiology. Um, come to find out women get pregnant and that changes your body and your metabolism and a lot of different things. So um, the reasoning behind that is because there was a fear of harming the fetus, of harming the woman. Um, And so the idea really in SWHR coming together and helping to create the Office of Research on Women's Health, but also to start a movement with others in the space, was to really think about, we can do this appropriately, and we have to know more than what we know. And so to be able to uh, make sure we're having more women included, we're recruiting more women, we're educating scientists and researchers, um, we're educating institutional review boards and the federal government and private industry about how to do this is so critical because 1990 was not that long ago. Exactly. So, again, let's do a little bit of a history lesson. What happened in 1994, and why was that so significant? Yes, so I have my timeline. <laughs> so, Great, um, even going back to um, you know the 70s and 80s, this idea that there was active exclusion was really critical because that really set us back, and I think that's why we're finding this underinvestment in a lot of these issues. Um, so you know, in 1993, uh, June of 1993, the NIH Revitalization Act passed, and that was the law that really said. NIH, you have to include women in clinical research. And so that was really critical. It it created the Office of Research in Women's Health, um, really to oversee how we are sort of collaborating, making sure that women are included and being thought about in this research. And it wasn't just women. It was women and other... And minorities. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we think about is, um, you know, women are not a homogenous (laughs) population. And 
And we really have to dig deeper into um, the underrepresented populations, but also really understand these differences, not just between men and women, but also differences that we're seeing in race or ethnicity. Um, there's even differences when we think about social determinants of health now. Those yes. are things we did not know. And those are the external factors that really impact on our health. That's exactly right. Um, so do you have more on your timeline? Oh, lots more on my timeline. Okay, um, not not no, too please. much. Um, so, um, you know, I think if you think about this gap in time between 1993 and 2016, that's a huge gap in time. It's also not a lot of time for implementation, although we've done a lot more, I would say, um, in terms of inclusion. But in 2016, the NIH passed the Sex as a Biological Variable Policy. And that was really critical because it required federal grant applicants to account for sex as a biological variable. So if you have a study, you have to go and justify why you would not look at male versus female or at least pull data. It's relatively easy to do, but unfortunately, 2016, very recent, was, um, you know, it's one of those things that people were not thinking about, not necessarily learning about. So there's a steep learning curve there, I think. Absolutely. And you talked about sex as a biological variable. Talk a little bit, because I think it gets confusing. The difference between gender and sex. Yes, those are two different things that I think are conflated quite often. And um, we do a lot of talking about this. So sex is a biological variable, meaning that, you know, you are assigned female at birth, you're assigned male at birth. It's a chromosomal issue. Um, gender is a social construct. And so that's really sort of what are the forces that sort of make you um, man or woman. Um, we also sort of get into sort of the evolving language and of gender identity. And so that's really critical as we think about what are the impacts of identifying as a woman in society. And when we think about that, a lot of what we think about is not being heard um, when you go to the doctor, right. um, challenges and burdens related to uh, getting medical care, as well as being a caregiver. You know, the burden of caregiving does fall to women in, in, in the United sure. States, but globally. So things like that are really important. And those are really two different data points. And they're interrelated for sure. But, you know, there are risk factors of being uh, female uh, later on in life for your health that you need to account for regardless of, of your gender identity. Sure. Um, and so I think those are, those are some things that we are working to think about and make sure that as data points are being collected through scientific research, through public health data systems, keeping those two separate yet related is really critical. Sure, and I would assume that that also could become a different variable or an additional variable if you're for someone who's transitioning, for example, and the addition of hormones or any other kind of um, that's exactly intervention. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I often think actually of cardiovascular disease yes. as the biggest issue here. So obviously if you are assigned female at birth and then you transition, you identify as male, um, you still have risk factors and those risk factors are different. Um, they also might present themselves differently later on regardless of your gender identity. So it is really important. Exactly. You know, let's talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease because it's a great example of why we really do need to tease out the differences between men and women. You want to talk a little bit about that and what we've maybe learned in the last 30 years? Sure. So I think that cardiovascular is one of the sort of most common examples of why this is important. I also think, you know, heart disease being the number one killer of women, which remains today, um, shows us that there's more work to be done. We know that these symptoms look different. We know progression looks different. 
Um, and I think that's something that we need to do more of sort of educating broader awareness uh, amongst the population. And, and again, I think it's probably the most common example of sure. what we mean by sex differences. Um, but, you know, there are other sort of issues that we're seeing coming down the pike in terms of additional risk factors. What do you do? How do you identify this early? That Those tactics may be different if you are a man or a woman, and the, the way that you're thinking about your health may change as well. Sure. And even the way that clinicians diagnose or treat um, that may be, have implications as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I also think when you think about sort of the cardiovascular risks, I, I came from the pregnancy space, so I think about this a lot. Um, in the maternal mortality side of things. So if you are postpartum and you present in the emergency department with some sort of heart issue or hypertension, um, the protocol is very different if you recently had a baby. It's completely different. And so um, if if you're not aware of that fact and you are in distress as a patient and that's not top of mind to tell your clinician that you recently had a baby and they didn't know that, um, you could die. And so it's really important to make sure that we're using those protocols and thinking about the treatment options from this lens so that we can have better healthcare outcomes. Absolutely. In addition to cardiovascular disease, what are some of the other areas that either the society is focusing on or that you personally think that we should be um, taking a closer look at? Yeah, so I would love to see, I sort of have this grand vision that we really should have some sort of large-scale women's health um, project or initiative. You know, we have a cancer moonshot. There was a large brain initiative, um, you know, at the federal level. And so I would love to see something that really ties this together at that level with targeted investment that's looking at sex differences, that's looking at sort of the gender differences, that's thinking about these issues. Um, Because... Right now, we're really looking at all healthcare, but specifically women's health from either a body part perspective or a specific condition or disease state, and we're not really connecting the dots as much as we should be. So I think as you think about this lifespan approach, um, you mentioned endometriosis. Endometriosis and uterine fibroids are a huge issue. 80% of women have uterine fibroids, um, more so if you're a black woman, and we know nothing about it until it is an issue for you that affects fertility. So I think there's a lot in that space that we need to be doing, but also you mentioned autoimmune. Predominantly women are impacted by autoimmune conditions and diseases, and there is not really a large-scale effort to really look into why, how, the length of diagnosis is so long for something like lupus, um, just as an example. And again, we see health disparities there. Many more black women than white women experience lupus. So we really need to invest in these issues that we know impact younger women and will follow you through your life. But I also think this issue of how do we stay healthy as long as possible so that we can make sure we change our outcomes trajectory is so critical. So you think about things like bone health, osteoporosis, that's also largely known as a predominantly women's health issue. But it's not prioritized because it's not necessarily going to kill you. And I always say this, it's not going to kill you until you are dead, right? Well, until you I have mean, a hip you fracture. You have a hip fracture and then you don't, that, right. this happened to my grandmother. She has a hip fracture. Mm-hmm. She had osteoporosis. We knew this. Um, she did not wake up from surgery. I mean, this oh, is just so one sorry. of these things that um, we know is happening and we're not really addressing it head on earlier, right? We're waiting until you get that first fracture to really say, oh, maybe there's something going on here. 
Um, we talked a lot about menopause over the last day. Exactly. That's a huge issue. It's not a disease. You know, I always say that <laughs> menopause right. is not a disease. Being a woman is not a disease. <laughs> um, but those life stages are really critical. We don't know anything about them. When we think about menopause, there's no way currently to track menopause research at the NIH. There's no code to do that. And so that would be a great first step to at least know where is the research? Who is doing it? Do we need to do more? And I would even say with longer lifespans, what are we doing to keep people as healthy as long as possible so that they can live their best lives? So they're all interconnected, um, but there are, the other thing I would add is Alzheimer's. Um, you know, women are disproportionately impacted as patients with Alzheimer's, but also that caregiver burden that I mentioned. Right. It's so key. Um, we are really seeing issues there just in terms of, of you know, how are we aging well? How are we making sure our bodies and our brains are kind of working together? Sure. And so there's a lot of room here, I think. I would say largely women's health is underfunded. Um, and underinvested in. There's not a lot of innovation, although I've been really happy to see more in the last few years. Right. But we're really still thinking of it, I think, in a fragmented way. Sure. And one area that comes to my mind, especially now, um, after the not after the p- pandemic, we're actually still in the pandemic, is mental health. And you, you know, again, not only for caregivers, which most women are, but um, just in general. Um, so any focus there for the society? Yes, I would say mental health and well-being is critical. It's sort of a common theme we see throughout all of our programs. Um, We have put out many patient toolkits. We started with migraine. We have some in endometriosis, uterine fibroids. We just put out a narcolepsy toolkit. They're all coming out very soon. Um, Menopause recently was released, and there's always a section about well-being. There's always a section about thinking through, okay, here are the symptoms that I have. How do I make sure that I'm armed with as much information as possible? Because a lot of the the mental health and quality of life uh, pieces to this are, although something may not be a physical, you know, it may not be fatal for you, but if your quality of life is impacted, that will, of course, lead to anxiety and depression and um, particularly during the pandemic and as we're sort of coming, everything's coming back. I think there's a lot of anxiety coming along with that. Absolutely. And so we do see it as a common theme, but there's also very separate, um, you know, mental health specific issues. I mentioned postpartum, postpartum sure. depression, but also major depressive disorders we know disproportionately impact women. Yes. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And again, that's another great example of this being very fragmented, right? It, it's not... Um, connected necessarily in sort of the thought process of of research and care that maybe your physical well-being might be impacted by your mental well-being or vice versa. Sure. You know, we think of research as kind of a little bit apart from us, right? Or that it's not necessarily something that's going to impact our lives anytime soon. And so talk a little bit, if you can, about the trajectory of research all the way to clinical practice. Yeah, that is really important. So again, from the beginning, we have to build in this idea of sex differences. Um, I think it's really important to understand what is the trial design? You don't have to know the ins and outs of it, but in this case, you would wanna know, were women included? What is the data? If you look at uh, an FDA label, there is now a pregnancy and lactation section that's a narrative, and it will tell you if there's data in pregnancy or lactation. Most of those 
data points are not there. Right. Um, the challenge, I think, in thinking through things like um, autoimmune or, or other conditions, and I sort of bring this back to pregnancy because I do sort of think of that as another area that, you know, we, we don't know a lot in women's health. We know even less in the pregnancy space. Um, but if you look at a, a label for a medication and it says that there's a registry, um, maybe there's a drug exposure registry, it's not easy to access that information. So how do you work to make sure you're understanding what the results are? Sometimes your doctor may not know that. So as much as I hate that we put the burden on the patient right now, I think it's really important to do as much research as possible to understand how did we get to this point, both in terms of what a diagnosis might be or what you're experiencing, um, what your risk factors may be. So as we think about that translation of science, really being able to fully understand, again, not what the scientific, you know, protocol is, not necessarily understanding how, you know, the, how a mechanism might work, sure. but that it was done, that's a really important question. Yeah, but the challenge is if it isn't, it kind of leaves you in the gray area. And I always, you know, kind of glibly say, you know, medicine's an art, not a science sometimes. So we just had an election, but what do you see in terms of the impact of this election or just in terms of how policy impacts research in general? So I think there are pros and cons here. And I, I try to be as, or as least alarmist as possible, right? When we think of women's <laughs> health, we think a lot about threats that are related to access to health care, mostly in the reproductive health space. I am very concerned about the impacts of something like the Dobbs decision on um, what that means for women accessing treatments across the board. I mean, we already saw this in the autoimmune space. So we're watching that really closely. Well, let's talk about that sure. because I don't know that people will understand. <laughs> sure. Um, give a little bit of detail. Yes. So, um, you know, after the Dobbs decision, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And in some states, there were laws that went into effect that outlawed abortion across the board. Sometimes there were exceptions. Sometimes there are not. Um, in terms of autoimmune and rheumatoid arthritis specifically, there is a drug called methotrexate mm -hmm. that a lot of women take to control their autoimmune conditions. Um, in fact, I know of several lupus patients who have recently been put on methotrexate. A woman um, in one of the Carolinas went to refill her prescription, the, uh, which she had been on for 20 years to, to deal with her condition. Um, she was denied by the pharmacist because there was fear that by filling the prescription, it would be seen as an abortion medication, and sometimes that drug could be used as medication abortion. And so there's a lot of confusion, I think, about the impact of specific um, drugs, medications, treatments on reproductive health. My big concern is really thinking and projecting out into the future as we're thinking through invest, investing in women's health research, is this going to hinder that? I believe that it will. I believe that that fear is very real. I also am very concerned about the sort of scientific um, protocols that exist in terms of, you know, if when you show up and even the doctor will ask you, but you also see this in clinical trials, you know, pregnancy history, um, very important questions that need to be answered, but I worry about what the impact of this is going to be on, um, on that research. In the case of an autoimmune condition, if you have to ha take some other medication that may not be as effective or is not effective at all, 
it is debilitating. It will set you back. You will not recover from that. And so there are very real issues here in terms of that decision, but also sort of watching what's happening in the policy space. So I would say that with with the election, I think there is a lot that can be done. I think that there's a lot in women's health, particularly as we think about this comprehensive landscape. Um, more female legislators, regardless of party. I think there's a lot to be said there to convince them that, you know, they too should be engaged in this. And what are you experiencing? How are you experiencing the healthcare system to use their stories to help with that and also use the data that we're seeing um, to really think through it? I've been surprised. So, um, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of bipartisan support for um, maternal health. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I've been making the case, and I think um, others are as well, and we're, we're getting to this place where maternal health we have to look at, but we also need to look at what's happening before and after, and, and what about women who are not mothers, um, and their health care is very important. And so when we look at things like Congresswoman Underwood's Momnibus legislation, yes. which is wonderful. Explain what that is. So the Momnibus is a set of 20 bills that uh, um, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois has introduced, um, really looking at maternal health from a public health perspective, a research perspective, uh, veterans health, mental, maternal mental health is included there, uh, extending Medicaid coverage postpartum for a year, which we know is really critical to improving health outcomes. So she's really leading that effort, and it's a bipartisan effort. And so I do believe in the next Congress we're going to see things like endometriosis research added to those types of initiative, Um, uterine fibroids. You know, there's a piece of legislation as well that looks at that. There was a menopause bill that was introduced fairly recently that was bipartisan. So I believe we're seeing movement in this space. And so there is hope. <laughs> okay. And now they have to start over again. We will right? start all over because again. Yes. So whatever doesn't pass in the lame duck, <laughs> once we, you know the right. dust settles, which I'm not sure it will, um, we'll see kind of what gets passed at the end of the year. And then we have to build new champions. Some people lost their elections. Some people retired. Um, you know, we always want to make sure that where we can be bipartisan, we are because women's health is not actually sure. a partisan issue. Exactly. <laughs> um, particularly as you think about investment in research and outcomes. Um, so yes, we'll have to start over in January. We're ready to do it. Sometimes this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, when we think about the maternal health space, that has actually moved quite quickly, I sure. would say, with the first legislation passing in 2018. So we're not that far away from that. And there's a lot of work to be done. That's great. And so what can listeners do? Is there anything that they can do to, um, you know, uh, make a difference in maybe some of the minds of these legislators? Yes. Tell your story. (laughs) Um, Write your member of Congress. I worked on the Hill a million years ago. (laughs) We answered every letter that came in from constituents. We tallied every phone call. Um, My bosses on the Hill would run into constituents at the grocery store or the post office. And it is okay to talk to them about, you know, the issues that are (laughs) important to you. You have to. (laughs) Don't be aggressive. (laughs) But it's important to say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. And here's how you can help. We really need prioritized funding for women's health. Here, you know, here's how you could do that. You can support this. So I think that's really important. That's an easy thing to do. And, um, you know, it's an easy, easy as an email. Uh, that's all on their website. You can find them easily. You can also just pick up the phone and call them. I don't recommend snail mail. It does not get to them due to security issues. So I would not do that. Um, 
But I think it's really important to talk about it and really generate as much interest as possible. And this is where I say, talk to your friends, talk to your family, know that this is a really important issue. I know there's lots of noise out there, particularly as we're looking at global issues. We're still dealing with a pandemic. Everything is a priority, but when everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. So we have to kind of sure. pick what we want to advocate for and, and really just ask for it. Well, we're, and we're not asking for charity, right? This, is, this will benefit everybody. Um, not only from a health standpoint, but economically as well. That's exactly right. So how did you get into this line of business, if you will? (laughs) Sure. Um, I grew up in New England and, um, you know, very small town. Civic duty is really important. Uh, I also grew up in a healthcare family. So my mom's a pediatric nurse by training. My father's a hospital administrator. Uh, it is not what I thought I was going to go into. I, I did go into political science when I got to college, mm-hmm. um, did an internship on Capitol Hill, and sort of fell in love with that idea of really being able to engage in the process to make a difference in people's lives. Um, had lost a couple of elections, though. It was very different when I was on the <laughs> Hill. We, I worked for moderate Republicans, and uh, those don't exist anymore. Right, um, we were often, yeah, we were often sort of crossing <clears throat> aisles, making sure that we were working with others, and um, we were doing really important work. We were part of the doubling of the NIH. We were a part of a lot of the sort of issues that we're now seeing um, the fruit being born right now of. Um, And then went into, I worked at a government relations firm, and uh, that's really where I fell more into the healthcare space. Mm So worked with uh, nonprofits, medical professional societies, did a lot in the women's and children's health space. So I worked with pediatric nephrologists and maternal fetal medicine docs, um, ended up working in-house for the maternal fetal medicine docs for a few years, and that's really where the pregnancy and maternal health advocacy background came, and then found my way to SWHR to work to tackle women's health across the lifespan. Wow, that's that's a great story, and they're so lucky to have you. But what did I not ask that you think is important to talk about? So I think one of the things that we have been thinking through, and we've always advocated for this, and and I'm sure you know this, especially as a, as a clinician, this is really important, right? What is the role of the clinician and sort of the education in terms of, A, research education, but also um, bringing women into leadership roles sort of across the spectrum? So that's a really critical piece to this. We can't just advocate for more money or really taking a lens to specific healthcare issues from just the patient perspective. We have to make sure we're getting from the researcher and clinician perspective. Um, So I think that's really important. More women are coming into the scientific workforce. We need to really lift them up and we need to make sure there are seats at the table. And when I say women, I also think women of color, women of diverse backgrounds. All of those people have unique perspectives and when they're there, then a lot of these things will be considered, you know. Um, Representation matters. That's exactly right. And part of the reason why we're where we are is because there weren't women at the table and they it wasn't an issue that was top of mind for men. And, um, you know, that's a really critical piece to this as well. So um, if you had to give our listeners one action item, what would you suggest? Talk about your health. (laughs) Um, I I really think that this is key, and we've heard a lot about stigma as well in women's health, and I think we've touched on that a little bit, but the more that you normalize the conversation around women's health, but also you understand more about what you are going through, 
Um, I think that that will really help to push this topic forward, but also make people a lot more comfortable with just discussing it generally. Sure. And as you said, also talk to your legislators. Please do. <laughs> they have heard it all. They will be more than happy to hear this. <laughs> well, Katie Schubert, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I think it's worth underlying a few takeaways from today's conversation. First of all, research is important to finding the solutions to women's health issues, including those that affect both men and women, as well as those that are exclusive or nearly so to women. Inclusion matters. Before 1994, we were practicing one-size-fits-all medicine because research didn't include women and other underrepresented populations. Now we're uncovering more information about the differences between the sexes, which will affect how we diagnose, treat, and prevent disease, taking into account the sex of the individual. More studies need to include other variables such as gender. Policy also matters. New information has been uncovered since mandates to include women in clinical trials and to consider sex as a specific variable in research were enacted. These differences affect how women are best diagnosed and treated. Policy also affects what research is funded. And finally, elections matter. Katie Schubert suggested that having more women in Congress could improve how women's health is prioritized. Also, policy decisions like the overturn of Roe v. Wade have unintended consequences, such as the example she gave of patients with rheumatoid arthritis not being able to access their medicines. If you want to learn more, I hosted a webinar about the unintended consequences of the Dobbs decision called Aftershocks, which is available on our website at beyondthepapergown.com. And now that the election is over, you can still affect those policies by talking to your own state and federal representatives. Share your story or your concern, and you can help move the needle to improve women's health. And to hear more interesting conversations on the latest in women's health, subscribe to our podcast and rate us on your podcast platform. As always, thanks for listening. podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian. Until next time, be well.